I want to talk about resolutions, but also God's kind of way of looking at things, which is not necessarily resolutions, but new beginnings. Uh, my wife said, now, you're not taking away resolutions, are you? Because, come on. I'm like, no, no, I'm not taking away New Year's resolutions. Those are fine. There's nothing wrong with those. Um, we all do them. The problem is they often only last, what, a day, a week, two weeks, maybe a month. You know, I'm going to work out every day. And then about mid-February, you're like, man, I worked out in like two weeks. i got to get going. So there's reasons for that. So I call this, because I like to have cool titles to my topics, and I didn't want to call it a new beginning. Uh, I call it the great do-over. Now, I've told the story before, but it's been a long time, so I'm going to tell it again. Most of you probably haven't heard it. I grew up in El Toro, Mission Viejo area, Lake Forest now. They changed the name. But back then, it was El Toro, and I lived on Tulip Street. And on Tulip Street, my house was right in the middle, and it was the perfect wiffle ball house in the whole land. It was awesome. So you'd stand across the street, where our neighbor's house is right here, and then my house was there, and there was like a big pepper tree in the yard, and that was kind of the foul pull over here. And then we had like a big, you know, uh, roof right there, and that was kind of, you know, the outfield. And then it dropped off to the fence right there with our neighbor. And then right on the neighbor's fence was this giant, like, spruce tree. And it was like a big green foul pole. It was awesome. So it was perfect. The perfect wiffle ball field. And so typically, as you start playing wiffle ball with your friends, or whatever game you're playing, it doesn't really matter, right? You're playing the game, and then, oh, I hit that ball, and you didn't, couldn't see it, or a car came by, or something happened. And, oh, and that was out. That was foul. So, no, 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 that was gone. That's a home run. No, dude, that's foul. No, it's foul. It's foul. And you start arguing back and forth. That is totally gone. That's a home run. We win. No, 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 no. So eventually you come to the point, right, where you're like, okay, let's, let's go. We need a do-over. Let's have a do-over. And so it kind of just wipes out the whole play, right, because you can't agree. Is it foul? Is it fair? Is it good? Is it bad? So you call a do-over, and you just redo the play. And that's kind of what I believe God wants us to do. God wants to give us a do-over. In fact, more than one do-over. But, but I call this the great do-over because God from the very beginning has had an answer for us, has had salvation for us, has had a plan for us. He's had a do-over. Okay, so again, I'm not against New Year's resolutions, but we fail a lot at those because we're kind of doing them in our own power. And so I want to talk about why. So I'm going to go to the Bible, uh, which is a good place to go, right? And I want to go over a couple of stories, and I want to talk about what it is that makes it so hard to stop doing the wrong thing. What makes it so hard as human beings to stop doing what we don't want to do? Uh, Because we all struggle with that in one way or another. All right, so first of all, I also want to say that the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Bible itself, I always like to say this when I get up here, it's not a bunch of old stories by a bunch of old dudes that we can't relate to, all right? It is written not just by old dudes, although they are old dudes now, really old. It is written by the Holy Spirit of God through men and women over thousands of years. It's written by the Holy Spirit. Yes, he wrote through men. Yes, uh, men are fallible, but he oversaw the writing of these books in our Bible, and he did it because he was telling a story, a story of redemption and a story of truth. It's the redemption of the nation of Israel. It's the redemption of the people of God. It's our story of redemption as well. So I want to kind of go over that a little bit. Let's take a little journey with me. I'm going to start in the Garden of Eden. 
And I'm not going to read all these stories. I'm just going to kind of go over them, and we're going to read some more towards the end. But the Garden of Eden, right? And we talked about this recently, I think. The Garden of Eden is where Adam and Eve are, right? So God creates a garden. He puts Adam in there. He adds Eve into there. There's animals in there. It's totally peaceful. It's totally beautiful. It's paradise, literally not the paradise they put on TV now, right? It's not like that. It's actually literally paradise. It's beautiful, and it's peaceful, and there's no sin, and there's just grace and joy, and they get to walk with God in the cool of the evening, and they get to hang out with these animals, right? So you go to the zoo, or you go on safari, and you see these crazy big lions and giraffes. Adam and Eve got to hang out with those guys, and they didn't attack them, right? If they went swimming, great white sharks weren't trying to eat them as they were swimming. They could hang out with the great white shark. It was cool. They got to name them all. It was beautiful. I would love to do this, by the way. I mean, I have like little cats, right? But I would love to have a lion. Now, there are some crazy people who actually have lions like in their apartments, and they end up on those TV shows like, <laughs> what's that show called? With a, when your pets attack or something? I don't even know. But typically what happens if you put a full-grown lion or tiger in your apartment, eventually they're going to eat you because they just can't feed them enough, right? And you look good after a while. All right. But remember that, have you ever seen this? I've seen a few of these on the internet. There's more than one, but one of them's really cool. There's a guy, and he's kind of walking out on this trail in Africa somewhere, and there's these two huge lions over there, and you're like, oh my God, what am I watching right now? This guy's going to get eaten by these lions. And the lions start walking towards him, and you're like, oh my goodness, what is, what is happening? What am I watching right now? And what you don't know is the backstory is this guy is kind of part of a rescue team, and he found these lions as little cubs, and their parents... Uh, had uh, died, and so he helped raise them for a while. And then eventually he had to move on and go somewhere else. I don't know why, but when he moved on, then other people kind of took over. So years later, he comes back to this preserve or whatever it is, I don't remember, but he's, so now he's standing on the trail with those lions, and you're like, these things are going to tear this guy apart. But because they knew him, they come up to him, and they stand up, and you're like, oh, God, here it comes. And then they flop their giant arms over the, his neck, and they start licking him and kissing him and hugging him. And I'm like, I would love to hug a lion. I would love it, as long as it didn't eat me, right? But Adam and Eve had that relationship. That's how awesome the Garden of Eden was. And they just had one rule. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat of any other tree. And you don't, by the way, they didn't need to eat of that tree, Right? Because they could walk with God in the cool of the evening. They could ask God anything they wanted to. They didn't need to eat of that tree. But the devil comes in, starts kind of lying to him, starts saying, oh, God didn't mean that. God does, he's trying to hold back on you. And he, he just, he, you know, he thinks, you know, you're going to be just like him. And he doesn't want that. He's holding out on you. You should eat of that tree. And really what that was, was Adam and Eve saying, okay, am I either going to stay with God in his plan, or am I going to eat of that tree and do my own thing and get my knowledge another way, apart from God, right? And God said, don't do it, because the day you do, you're going to die. And so they end up eating either from the tree, and they didn't physically drop dead there, but death has now entered the equation, right? Sin has now entered the equation. Now God has to kick them out of the garden and he even puts a giant angel out there with a flaming sword. So if they try to come back, they'll get wiped out because he doesn't want them to go and eat of the tree of life now and die in their sin. And so they can't go back in the garden. They're kicked out of paradise. 
And now everything they do is hard. Everything they do is difficult. And by the way, the devil was completely lying to them. They got conned, right? Because after that, they're not enlightened. They're not happy. There is like, they have to sweat to get anything done, which they didn't have to do before. They have to work the ground. They can't hang out with the animals. The animals are all afraid of them now and probably want to eat them at some point. And so their sin and being kicked out of that garden kind of ended all that paradise. And so in the garden, we see the first time the problems coming in. We see sin, we see them hiding, we see them lying, we see them uh, blaming each other. And I want to read uh, just a little bit here, Genesis 3, 14, kind of the, what God does as a result of this besides kicking him out of the garden. Genesis 3, 14 uh, through 19. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, conning Adam and Eve, you are cursed more than the, all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and, and you shall bruise his heel. Which is kind of, a, it's a messianic prophecy that basically one day, you're, it's, the other translations say his head would be crushed. So one day, yeah, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush you. He's going to crush you in your kingdom. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception and pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat uh, the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and dust you shall return. So they gave up paradise for this, right? Not a good deal. Now everything is hard. Now everything is difficult. Now there's this, this pain and sorrow. And even we see right away from the very beginning, one of the first stories is Cain and Abel, right? So they're children, Cain and Abel. And Cain is just so jealous of Abel because of his relationship with God. And he doesn't really explain it all that well, Right? Well, he's jealous of his brother. It's not some stranger that he's jealous of. This is his brother, right? It's not like some road rage kind of thing. It's not like he's riding his rhino and, you know, Cain's riding a rhino and Abel's riding a rhino and, you know, Abel cuts off Cain and now he's mad and now there's a fight and he kills him on accident. It's not like that. It's his brother. And God even comes down before this happens and says, Cain, listen to me. Sin is waiting at your door and it wants to take you. And you need to resist it. You need to resist that sin. So what did Cain do? Killed his brother. He didn't resist the sin. It was so powerful, it overtook him. It didn't have to, but it was difficult. So from the very beginning, we see as a result of Adam and Eve's sin, uh, a difficult road, and life now is not easy, and now... There's things called jealousy and rage and hate and rape and murder and all these uh, terrible things are now in the world, and they see it right away with their very own families. All right, but God's got a plan. It's not for death. It's for a new beginning, and right from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, God had a plan to save us from our sin, to save us uh, from all the things that just came upon us. Um, But it's going to take 
free will still. So even though we're not in the Garden of Eden anymore, even though they kind of chose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and not God and not the tree of life, and they got kicked out of the garden, free will is still the key. And God wants us to have free will. He wanted them to have free will because he doesn't want you to be a robot. God doesn't want you to be a robot that has to love him, that demands to love him. God wants you to freely love him, to come to him because he loves you and he created you and he has a purpose for you and he wants to share that with you but you have to come to him just like Adam and Eve. We have to choose in our free will that we are going to come to God and do things his way. Okay, so now kind of a weird story, angels uh, and the daughter of men. Genesis 6, they have these angels, right? And we believe they're fallen angels. Now, there's some people don't agree with that completely, but, but a lot of people believe that these are fallen angels, right? And they see the daughters of men, and they look pretty beautiful, and so they want to be with them, and they are with them. Uh, PG-13, right? So they are with them. And they have children, and they become these giants, right? So men are trying now to go with angels to work around God. They're not working with God. Now they're working with these angels. And so God is going to have none of it, and he floods the earth, and he takes away all the people except for Noah, who had not kind of gotten into that whole thing. Because God didn't want his plan from the Garden of Eden to be ruined. Because if the seed of angels mixed with men, then the Messiah couldn't come from that line. And he had to come from the line of Adam and now through the line of Noah. And so God floods the earth, takes away this craziness that's happening with these giants, uh, and he wipes them out with a flood. Now look, this is something that happens like in our world today. There's witchcraft and there's all kinds of you know, occultic things where people are trying to get this certain knowledge from the devil, not from God. They're not trying to go to the Bible. They're not trying to go to church. They are trying to do wicked things to try and get special knowledge so they can have an advantage over their enemies or the other people around them so they could be rich, so they could be famous, right? What did Satan do with Jesus when they went up on that mountain? He said, look at all these kingdoms. All of them can be yours, Jesus. You don't have to go to the cross. Just bow down and worship me, and I'll give it to you. And the interesting thing is, is that Jesus doesn't look at him and say, you can't do that, Satan. That, you, don't have, you can't do that. That's not yours. He looks at him and he says, get behind me, Satan, for it is written, right? He doesn't say that it's not true. It is true. Satan could have given him all the kingdoms, could give him power, could give him wealth, could make him rich and famous, but that wasn't God's plan. Right? So men have been trying to do this forever, even since this time. So now we have Noah. God starts over with Noah, kind of a do-over right there. And what's the first thing Noah does? He grows a vineyard and he gets hammered, right? He gets drunk on the wine. And then some crazy thing happened with his kids, and so everybody's all upset. Uh, so, so the point is there that sin, sin is still there. Trying to work around a different way is not going to help you. Sin is still there. There's another story about the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. So out in this great plain, and they think it's like basically like Iraq today, there's a giant plain, you know, a big empty area, and all the people back then still spoke the same language from the Garden of Eden, whatever that was. Some people think it might have been Hebrew. That could have been the first language, but we don't know. But they all, whatever it was, they all spoke the same language. They were all in community together. They all were hanging out together. They were all scheming together. And basically, they were trying to build this giant tower to the sky 
so they can confront God, I guess, is the idea, right? And they can make a great, it says they can make a great name for themselves. And Nimrod, who was in charge of this, who was a very wicked man, hated God, and his deal was he hated God because God killed his ancestors in the flood. Although he came from Noah too, right, in that line? So it's kind of a, a crazy sin rage story. But they're trying to build this giant tower of Babel, and they're trying to come together like a one-world thing and build a thing to, and take on God and somehow rule the world like that. And of course, God is going to have none of that, right? God's looking down there going, no, you're not doing that. So God confuses their languages, so they all start speaking different languages. And so if I'm talking to Matthew, and hey, Matthew, and all of a sudden Matthew's like, ah, what, 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 what are you saying? They don't understand you. So they had to go around finding, but, hey, anybody understand me? Oh, you do. Come on, you're on my team, you know, right? And, but, but they had to scatter, and they couldn't work together on this big project anymore to try and uh, take on God. It kind of sounds a little bit like today, right? In our world, what is everybody working towards? One world government, one world religion, right? And they talk about how it's going to be great, and there's going to be peace and harmony. Although the Bible says that when that happens, when they say peace and safety, look out, because the end is coming, right? It's also the platform, according to the Bible, of the Antichrist. He needs a one world government and a one world religion that is all working together. And the interesting thing about that is that God confused the first time in Babel their languages, right? So they couldn't communicate anymore. They couldn't be this giant workforce. But now what do we have today? We have the internet. Now, just like your New Year's resolutions, I'm not saying don't use the internet. The internet is a very valuable tool. It's amazing what the internet can do, right? I mean, even studying for this, I can't remember what that scripture was. Google it. Oh, there it is right there. The internet is amazing. But one of the things about the internet that's interesting is it's bringing us back together where we all can communicate. Even if we speak different languages, you just hit the button and it translates it, right? It's bringing the world back together in one so that people in Australia can communicate with people in you know, China, can, can communicate with anybody. And it's kind of bringing us back together, which is just kind of a scary thought. I'm just, just throwing that out there. So be careful with that internet. All right. And then we had the law, right? So God, now he chooses the, the people of Israel. He goes, I'm going to work through this one nation, and I'm going to use them as a kingdom of priests, and they're going to preach the message and bring people back to me. Uh, and he said, okay, you're all going to be priests in Israel. And they're like, no, we don't want to do that. Okay, fine, I'll just use the Levites to do that. But basically, they were going to be God's nation. And so God pulls them out of Egypt, right, with Moses, and he brings them to Mount Sinai, and he, and he, and he gives them the law, and before they can even come down off the mountain, they had this giant party because they thought Moses was dead. He was gone so long. And they melted all their gold and they started making golden calves because that was the God of Egypt. And they were going to go back to Egypt. Or by the way, they were slaves. So the law is not something that's supposed to save you or can save you. In fact, what we've done with the law, what the Jewish people did with the law is they have the law, right? The, the Pentateuch, the Old Testament sort of. And they have books that interpret that law. And then they have books that interpret those books that interpret that law. And so they've made this giant kind of spiritual bureaucracy where when Jesus came, he just kept saying, you know, you, you are, your rules and your regulations are just completely devoid of God. Completely devoid of God. Let me read uh, Romans chapter 7. 
I've, uh, those of you who've known me for a while, I used to have my Bible of many colors. I've now stolen my wife's Bible <clears throat> because it's all in one piece and I can read it. <laughs> I can read it and not lose pages. All right, Romans chapter 7, verse 7 through 25. Uh, this is Paul talking to the Romans. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Then what is, uh, then, I'm sorry, has what uh, is good then become death to me? Certainly not. But sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, I do not practice. But what I hate, that's what I do. That's not familiar to anybody? Anybody else deal with that? Right? What, I'm, what, I, uh, what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I don't practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For the will is present with me, but how to perform uh, what is good, I do not find for the good that I will to do, I don't, I don't do. But the evil I will not to do, that's what I practice. Now, if I do what uh, I will not to do, it is no longer I, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity into the law which is in my members. And this is Paul talking. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind I serve the law of God, but with the flesh I, I the law of sin. Okay, so that was a lot of stuff to read. I'm sorry. Very kind of deep theological, right? But what he's saying is, is that the law didn't save anybody. What the law did was draw sin out and expose it. What the law did is anytime that the law said don't do something, you immediately wanted to do it because sin is in your flesh working against God, working against uh, what God wants you to do, working, Paul even says, working what I want to do. I don't want to do that, but I keep doing it. Why? Because there's sin. The sin of Adam and Eve has never left. It is still in us, and it still drives us, right? So Paul is saying that the law exposes sin. It doesn't help. So I was thinking, we're doing the fasting thing, right? And I was thinking, you know, if you wanted to, say you're going to fast donuts, right? I love donuts. Donuts are great. But he's like, I'm going to fast donuts, right? I'm not going to eat donuts for 21 days. What's going to happen is tonight I'm going to go to bed, and I'm going to have dreams of donuts dancing around saying, eat me, eat me, Chuck, eat me, right? Because it's an immediate thing that the law immediately draws sin out, and sin takes advantage because what we're trying not to do, that's what we do. 
What's the first thing that's going to happen to Pastor Matthew when he wakes up tomorrow? Going to want that coffee. He's going to have dreams of triple vente caramel macchiatos <laughs> dancing in his head. Why? Because that's how sin works. It works in us that way. I, was, uh, I had a little sandwich I took to work, like from Saturday. and I was going to take to work on Monday, and I was really excited. It was from Martinez, and I liked that place. And I had a little Italian sandwich, and I had a little dressing thing. I was going to pour it on there, and it was, oh, this is going to be so great, my lunch, right? So I get to work, and I'm working, I'm working. I think, oh, man, I brought that sandwich. Cool. And I go to the fridge. Sandwich isn't there. Dang it. Where's the sandwich? Oh, I left it on the counter at home. I grabbed my water and I phone and I left the sandwich. Dang it. Now, I wasn't really thinking about that sandwich all day. I was just doing my job and I was fine. But the second I understood that I had forgot that sandwich, I could taste that sandwich. I was so hungry. I was literally like just dying for that sandwich now, which I got the next day, but I couldn't have that day. But the point Paul is making with all those words is that that's how sin works in us. What we try not to do in our own flesh, we can't do it without God. We can't do it. And at the end of it, what does he say? I thank God for Jesus Christ because he's the only one who dealt with sin. He's the only religion, right, that deals with sin. Other places might talk about, you know, being pie in the sky or humming on a mountain or world peace or whatever it is, but it's not going to deal with your sin. So yeah, you might feel good for a little while, but eventually sin's going to come knocking again and it's going to cause you problems, like it causes all of us problems, right? Jesus is the one who dealt with sin. Um, I have a quote from C.S. Lewis, which I really like, kind of on this topic. C.S. Lewis said, no man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows the full of what temptation means. He is the only complete realist. I love that. All right, so, done with that sandwich. Moving on. So then the prophets, so all this time, right, in the Old Testament, you can read all the prophets, and they're all proclaiming, first of all, that you can't do this on your own. You need a Savior, and God is sending a Savior to come and help you. God is sending a Savior to deal with your sin, and he's coming, and he's the one who's going to save you. He's the one that's going to deal with the sin issue. So I'm going to read Isaiah 53, quick here. It's very famous, of course. I can find it. Uh, Isaiah 53, 1 through 6, in verse 10. Uh, who, this is Isaiah. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of the dry ground. He has no form of comeliness. 
And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. So he's prophesying about Jesus. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And verse 10 says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him and to put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. So God is saying, I'm going to send my son, I'm going to send a savior. He is going to specifically die for your sins. So remember we talked before about how everybody in Israel was waiting for Jesus to come and just start taking out the Romans, right? Like he's going to be this mighty warrior. And we talked about the fact that someday he will come back as the mighty warrior. And you do not want to meet the mighty warrior without meeting the Savior first. The first thing that God was going to do is get us saved and deal with sin because that is our big problem. That is a much bigger problem than the Roman Empire that doesn't exist anymore, right? It's our sin. And Jesus is the only one who can deal with it. Jesus was known as the second Adam in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, and 22, but now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of the, those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So Jesus is like the second Adam. So Adam messed it up. We probably would have messed it up too, not putting it all on Adam. But Adam sinned, right? Didn't listen to God, chose his own way. And so God sent a second Adam, Jesus Christ, and he reversed what Adam did. He made right what Adam did wrong. He dealt with that issue, which is our sin and our rebellion against God. So Jesus is like the second Adam. We're redeemed from the curse. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. So in the garden, God pronounced all these curses. We just read it, right? And that curse has just caused heartache and sorrow and pain throughout all these stories. And there's so many more stories we can go over tonight, right? About the dumb things human beings do and how cruel we can be to each other. But that is from the curse. And Jesus came to take away that curse. He's taking away sin. He's taking away the curse. He's taking away the, the, uh, the weapons that Satan uses against us, right? There is an enemy, there is a devil, and he's constantly trying to get us to do things the wrong way, constantly trying to get us to rebel against God. And he's constantly saying, well, did God really say that? God didn't really mean that. You don't have to do that. That's stupid. That's an old book written by a bunch of old guys. You don't have to listen to that book, right? But Jesus came to take away the weapons that he had. Okay, so... Almost done. So what do we do now? 1 Timothy 2.5 says there is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. There are a lot of lovely religions out there, and I'm sure they're great in their own ways, but there is one mediator, the Bible says, between you and God. One. Not 10, not 20, not all roads lead to heaven. There is one person who can stand in the gap for you, and that's Jesus Christ. Uh, in Acts 4.12, it says there's no other name. Peter has this great 
message he gives to these people, and a bunch of people got saved. And his main message was, there is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved other than Jesus. So I'm going to read Jesus real quick. See what he has to say about it. In John, uh, John chapter 3. Another famous section right there. I've got to put some ink in my wife's Bible. John chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. Almost done. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? And Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said you must be born again. Uh, Verse 14 through 18. And as Moses was lifted up, as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, or to kill the Romans, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is uh, not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So all these things are happening. All this sin is going down. All these guys, all these stories in the Old Testament, people are trying to do things their own way. They're trying to go through fallen angels. They're trying to get together in one accord and build this monster castle that they can go and take on God. They're doing all kinds of dumb things, right? Because sin is driving them. And God said, I'm going to send a Savior to save you from that sin. Because until you deal with your sin, then you're hopeless. You're going to continue to do wrong. Paul said, oh, wretched man that I am, why am I doing what I'm doing? He said, because I have sin in me from Adam and Eve. I still have that sin. And someone has to help me with that. And that someone is Jesus. Uh, Romans 10, 9 through 10 says, if you confess with your mouth, Uh, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. You will be saved. And one of my favorite scriptures, I think I probably read it every time, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. God's not against you having a New Year's resolution. Those are fine. But God wants to change you from the inside out and God wants to deal with the sin that is driving you to do the things that you want to change, that is keeping you in frustration and sin and heartache, that is causing the problems that you have. God has sent Jesus to deal with that. And he doesn't just want to help you with some kind of you know, mental trick or something. He wants to make you a new creation from the inside out. And so when you're dealing with these problems, you can go to God and say, Lord, you said in your word, I'm redeemed from the curse. You said in your word that you've dealt with this sin. I'm struggling with it, Lord. I love how Matthew uses that a lot. and says, you know, don't let the devil put you in shame. Don't let the devil uh, accuse you and beat you up. 
to where you want to quit. God has forgiven you. God has given you grace. And God will give you help with whatever it is you need to fix in your life. Do you need healing? He wants to heal you. Deliverance? He wants to deliver you. Do you need help with a job? A mate? I don't know what your deal is tonight. I don't know what you're praying for or what you're struggling with. But whatever it is, God has the answer through Jesus Christ. But he is the key. Right? You can have a great moment with other religions. But Jesus Christ is not a religion. He is a risen Lord, the Son of God, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. And he can change your life because he made you. He created you, and he can fix whatever it is is wrong. Amen? I was doing great till that moment right there. I don't know. The other thing that happens here is the Holy Spirit likes to get on top of me here and shake me when I'm up here once in a while. Listen, this is what I want to do. Chris, can you? Where's Chris? Oh, there's Chris. I'm sorry. Uh, this is kind of old school. I'm an old school children's pastor. Matthew, pastor Matthew was one as well. Uh, and so I used to do camps and VBSs and all kinds of things. So uh, one of the things that we like to do is to have a prayer for salvation. Now, maybe you've prayed that a million times. You don't need to pray it a million times. If you prayed to receive the Lord as your Savior, you're good. The other thing I don't want to do is I come from Calvary Chapel in the old, old days, a long, long time ago. And they used to, I used to call it the perp walk. They would have you in the back somewhere or you'd be stuck in the middle of an aisle and they would say, you need to stand up and come down here and, you know, and stand in front of us. And, and that's fine. I'm, nothing wrong with that. But I'm not here to embarrass you. I'm not here to challenge you in that way because that's not what's going to save you, right? Fear tactics and all that. It's not going to save you. You have to want it. You have to want God to come into your heart and change your life. But listen, if you don't have Jesus Christ in your life, you are open and vulnerable. You are a target for the enemy because you have no way to fight against him. No way. You have sin from Adam and Eve. You have the curse that is working against you. You have the devil and his minions that are trying to just crush you. You need Jesus Christ. That is the answer to all your problems. And it's not going to happen necessarily right away as far as solving problems, but God will help you through. So I want to pray, and I want all of us to pray. I know most of you have already prayed this prayer. If you've never prayed this prayer and you want to accept the Lord as your Savior, just pray along with us. I haven't done this in a while. This could be a little clunky, but it's going to work. We want to ask Jesus to be our Lord and Savior. So just say this after me. Jesus, I believe that you're the Son of God. And I believe you came and died for my sins. And you rose again the third day. And you defeated death and hell and sin. And you defeated the curse that works against me. So I ask you to come into my heart. Fill me with your spirit. I receive your spirit and I receive your forgiveness. I am now born again. Help me, Lord, to walk with you each and every day of my life. Thank you for salvation. Amen. Well, listen, if you prayed that prayer, I don't expect you to jump up and run around or anything like that, but tell somebody, right? Tell somebody, hey, I prayed that prayer. I asked Jesus into my heart because it'll change your life forever. 
Not only do you get to go to heaven, but you have God doing battle for you right here and right now. You have us as a family praying for you right here and right now. Amen? I'm also going to pray just for anybody who has a resolution and you want help. I have some of those. So it's always good to pray. So, Father, we just thank you for everybody here tonight. Lord, I know we're all working on things. It's a new year. We're excited, and we're making resolutions, and we want to get things straight. And whatever that is for each and every individual in this crowd or anybody listening to me on this tape, Lord, I just pray, Father, give them strength, God. Let them pray with conviction and power and authority that you have given them. Lord, you've defeated death, and you've defeated hell, and you've defeated sin. You have undone what Adam did, and you are in us. So, Father, I pray, help them. Whatever it is they're dealing with, God, whatever it is they need tonight, I pray you'll be with them. You'll give them wisdom. Father, give them courage. Help them pray in faith, knowing, God, that you've done these things. But it's not a hope and a prayer, and it's not mind over matter. But it is the Holy Spirit of God that you've given us over matter. That's what it is. So, Father, I pray, help each and every person here, God. Bless them in this new year. Lord, let them even overcome way more than they even imagined they could. As they just get on a roll with you and your spirit and your vision for their life. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.